Hello, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to the Return of Ritual online show. For those of you who have been listening for a while, you guys know that I am wildly passionate about ritual and ceremony. And I actually have a strong belief that when you look back at any ancient culture or civilization, ceremony and ritual was really at the heart of that community. And unfortunately, when I look around my community and most communities in the West, in the West except for the one we're going to talk about today, um, you know, ritual and ceremony has kind of been stripped from the everyday existence. And so it's really my mission to help bring ritual and ceremony back uh, into our lives. And today I have uh, a, an amazing woman on the show. She is very inspiring to me. Um, she is I would say an elder in the community, and we're very, very honored to have her on the show today. I think we're gonna dive into some amazing topics. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to introduce Marcy Tellender, and I'm gonna read her bio, and I've, I've taken the excerpt that I think is most fitting for our conversation today, but she is phenomenal and has a very extensive bio, so I encourage you to read that um, in the show notes. So Marcy is a registered expressive arts therapist, eco-psychology and transpersonal therapist, ritualist, and earth-honoring arts advocate. Marcy is an integrative medicine woman and weaver of intuitive transformational awareness from a lineage of Northern European spiritual tradition. She offers many kinds of in-person and online virtual retreats. Some of these include Valkyries and Valiant Women, Reclaiming Our Spiritual and Spirited Ancestral European Native Spirit Roots, and Glamoury, the Ancient Tradition of Bringing Your Beautiful Goddess Spirit Forth into Your Powerful, Practical Life, and Reclaiming the Green Man, the True Gentleman for the 21st Century. She is a poet, she's a, an award-winning writer, radio and film documentarian, journalist and an expressive community arts ritual therapist and has traveled and presented programs throughout the US, Canada, Mexico, and Europe, assisting a wide range of organizations, institutions, towns, and cities in creating ritual to celebrate and honor spirit of place. Welcome, Marcy. I feel welcomed. It's so lovely to have you. The first question that I have for you today is what's your zodiac sign? Look at my forehead, look at my brow. Can Are you, you a Taurus? Aries. Aries. Do you identify with that zodiac sign? I do. I absolutely do. It's a fire sign, of course, as you know, and it is the last and the first as we go in the cycles of the year. And so Aries is, I would think of as heroic, as perhaps a, a leader, not so much the best at things, but perhaps the first to do them. And Aries is also impatient and expects the best of itself and others. I can, I can totally agree because my birthday is March 21st. So oh, you're at a cusp. I'm right on the cusp mm -hmm. of Pisces Aries and mm -hmm. definitely can relate to a lot of those, those qualities. Mm -hmm. Marcy, what is your ideal morning or evening ritual? I was thinking about that 
yesterday evening, I don't think there's a moment in my day that isn't part of a ritual. And I'm sure you will relate to that. It's when we have the intention and attention to be conscious of it, to allow ourselves to pause and poise, to offer it up and also to receive. So my favorite evening ritual is at 8 p.m. joining all of Colorado in howling for health. And you hear howling happening around you, whether it is coyotes or somebody's husky dog or other humans. And at that beautiful hour of the wolf, as it's called, the bats start to fly around and work the Engelman spruce trees, the beauty of Alpenglow turning into the blue hour and being able to be out there and howling with first nature is something that releases tension, it builds inspiration, and it connects us in our biophilia, inner joining with other species and life forms. Mm. And you said all of Colorado. Yes, we're not like Italy where people are standing on their balconies and just singing, opera. we're howling. I love <laughs> it. It's so right. I love that. I think that's such a, you know, I've, um, I've heard of a little bit of movements that have happened here in Southern California. You know, obviously currently we're in shelter in place and communities have started to come outside of their home at 7 p.m. at night and just bang pots and pans kind of signaling, hey, we're all in this together. Um, you know, you can hear us, we're here, we're, we're connected, although we're separate um, or in our homes, I should say. And I found that to be quite interesting. So this kind of seems in that similar vein. How has ritual and ceremony played an important role in the work that you do today? I think it informs everything. I am an embodiment, therapist, sacred theater artist, direct action through the arts person. And so ritual identifies what the plan, the purpose, the practice, the patience, and hopefully the presence, being present for the presence, where there is always a promise if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Nature is always speaking to us. The earth is always working, working for the best flow of life. And so I think of ritual as being part of that marrying the earth, that devotional making of a vow to the earth. Nothing is too small to be sacred. No act is too trivial not to be sacred. Yeah, and, and you said making a vow to the earth, and I know a lot of the work that you do, um, which we'll get into here in a little bit, is uh, one of the, probably I would say the festival that has been the greatest influence for Burning Man, something that you have organized within your community, the Vin Vinotox Festival. And 
maybe you can start by just telling us a little bit about that festival, but I want to then tie into these ceremonies that you perform where you marry people to the land and what does that entail? I am I'm so pleased to talk about Vinatuck. It's it's my great love. And although I've created events and earth-based ceremony and ritual around the world, this is my home place. It's the place where I am rebirthed. I was not born here, but I've been reborn here. And so when I came in the 70s, when this was a really dying mining town, the elders were amazing, hearty, soulful people, true salt of the earth in every possible way. Mm -hmm. And I saw that we newbies, the initial beginnings of environmental journalism, I came here to buy into a newspaper and to fight a molybdenum mine, a huge mine that would decapitate the mother mountain into whose bosom our little village is nestled. And so it felt like the good fight. I was coming from Chicago and I realized that the elders had the key, that their traditions from their core values, from the European countries, which they came from, were very similar to this part of the Rockies. Beautiful watersheds, tiny little fjords, green evergreen forests, long rolling prairies, really beautiful and very similar to probably what most of our European roots are based in. And so I wanted to bring together the new folks who wanted to stop the molybdenum mine and the elders who felt that because they'd been mining all their lives and for generations in the old country before their families came here, they believed in mining. And so we were not seeing eye to eye. There was a great disparity between generations and how we viewed this concept of uh, extractive mining. And I knew from experience as a therapist, as a journalist, as someone who was constantly sharing stories to collect and invite stories, that our personal stories are the connective tissue for all things. We can bring together any void or gap or disparity through our personal stories. And I knew that it was very important for me to sit with the elders who all gathered at this wonderful hardware store and Conoco gas station around the pot-bellied stove. And when I walked in, it was deadly quiet. These were all men. And this is where they went to share whatever information and stories that they chose to do. And I had to sit for a long time, week after week, in this silence until finally they in their generosity of spirit accepted me. And so we drew from the Slavic roots, the Germanic, the Swiss, the Norse, the British, the Celtic roots that were all of their sources in indigenous um, European grounding. And we drew from the most ancient archetypes that are available to Western esoteric understanding. And that is the green man, the father of joy, of the forest and field, the protector of the natural world, he who marries Mother Earth, very pregnant Mother Earth, and then numerous other archetypes that come from these traditions. 
and we embodied them. And when I say that, I really mean that that is our accepted belief here. If a person is embodying the earth dragon, she is all that is wild and untamed about nature. If she is embodying the pregnant harvest mother, she is truly pregnant. She will give birth to our greatest crop, our greatest harvest, the children. And then storytelling is part of this. And it's a week-long event that has approximately 30 different rituals and ceremonies and celebrations, which incorporate um, the goddess within red tent for women and other private ceremonies in which we bless the community, walk into nature to a sacred place known to the women in the community to offer up and decide who the green man is going to be based on his generosity of spirit, his kindness to women and children, his preservation and protection of the earth, his active participation in generosity of spirit in our community. And this is a very special thing when we choose this man. He is then for a year and a day, the leader, the what used to be called the Lord of the land. He is then very specially honored and feted. And this entire event builds to an exquisite all, the largest, we think, farm-to-table um, feast in America, and it stretches down our Elk Avenue Main Street, table after table after table with wonderful locally sourced organic food created by our chefs and our, our bakers and all the people in the, our community. And this is a wedding feast, essentially, because right before we gather and sit down and toast each other, I hand fast, and this is the ancient Norse tradition of binding, of tying the knot for a year and a day, which I think is very intelligent. Then in a year and a day, people look at each other and say, shall we again? And they're hand fasted again, if they choose. In our community, it's uh, the equivalent of being engaged. So you're recognized and celebrated and mentored by the community. Also, there is another ritual, which is the ancient tradition, both Norse and Celtic and Germanic, of the Lord or the leader marrying the land. And this was a very important ceremony in which, in our case, the green man, who is the leader chosen by the sacred feminine to join the sacred feminine and to pledge for the people that he will always make her sovereign, that the earth is sovereign over all, and any decision that is to be made in the community will refer first to her and her dominion over her children and her own earth body. And that is a beautiful ceremony in which a, a noble woman, in this case, somebody who's been with us for many years, she's now a physician, she's been our green healer for a long time. She returns um, from the emergency room in the uh, Albuquerque University Hospital to come and to speak the vow, the pledge 
the troth that the green man will plight, will promise. And he kneels, she gives him this beautiful vow and pledge to make. He speaks it after her. And then she invites all the men in the community to kneel who choose to, and to make their own personal vows, not only for a year and a day, but a devotional act for life. And it's an exquisite experience to see the sacred masculine in our community in that great rite that brings back the rich and fluent earth from the wasteland, which I think you know, and many of us know, we are again looking at. Also, there's another ceremony in that same time frame in which women claim their own sovereignty and they marry themselves as the earth. Very powerful. And so that then is followed by a wonderful feast and dancing and poetry and storytelling. And then the next day is the absolute peak, which is a huge four-story bonfire at our crossroads in our village, which has always been the sacred place in any community across the world. And this is first lauded by mumming in which 250 people who are amazing sacred theater artists who are embodying what they would die for in the wild, in nature, because we're surrounded by wilderness. And so that is a major part of our focus in terms of environmental arts. So you will see wolves and you will see people sprouting horns and antlers and racks and tails and wild and fierce and amazing creatures. And we have transformed. We become the myth, we live the healing story. And mumming goes into all of the restaurants and the pubs and invites people out, seduces them, tells a story of all of the archetypal characters. There's tremendous joy and drumming in the streets and all kinds of tribal dancing. And then there is the trial of the great grump. And this is a large and fierce effigy created by a very precious sacred artist who also does create things for Burning Man, but has first been creating them for Venotag, which by the way is Slavic for Fall Wine Festival. So you can know that the wine is flowing <laughs> and the mead is flowing and the ale is flowing. And this effigy is stuffed full with little pieces of paper that have been all around the community for several weeks and the preschool children make little boxes called grump boxes and people write on these papers what they would like to bless and release because this is a festival of purging and new year as the european indigenous peoples celebrated it it's a very sacred time between maban which is the autumn equinox and sawan the all hallows time of year the veils are very thin. And so we are communicating with all of our ancestors, which include ancestors of nature spirits. The trial then 
looks at the grump who is carrying all the grievances. The grump is the scapegoat. The grump will sacrifice itself so that the green man may live, so that the archetypal embodiment of the red lady, which is the name of our mountain, who is a woman chosen in this community for her environmental work, um, so that she may live for another year and a day. And so the green man may live to rise again in the spring. So far, the grump has always accepted that scapegoating. This huge torchlight parade proceeds down our main street and on a high chair called the Stajhaler, which is a Norse tradition for the seer. This is from my background and in my lineage. The red lady sits on that and is carried on the shoulders of men and women who, while she's being carried, she's invited to divine and look out over the valley and see for the people and the planet. And what her oracle vision and awareness tells her, we are very pleased to learn and heed. This proceeds then to the crossroads where there is exquisite fire dancing, um, fire spinning, and the torchbearers push the grump into the bonfire. There are pyrotechnic sculptures all around, and the fire is lit, and the entire community then dances around that fire and continues to throw in their little grumps, that which they want to bless and release and banish so that we may all beckon a future of balance and interconnection with our natural world and each other. This for us is just before the first snows. We have eight months of snow and so usually, and so, it's very important for us to see our neighbors and our friends and our family around this fire because we're going to need to be able to call on each other during these intense winter months. I, I'm, I'm almost like don't know how to respond to this because it is so powerfully beautiful. And I, I'm so, pleased to learn that this this exists that there's hope mm -hmm. and that there's inspiration and that the arts are at the the heart of the community and the expressiveness and you know i i'm just i'm so intrigued um that i'm almost baffled by what you've created this this movement that you have created in crescent butte colorado um it just sounds so remarkable to me. So I want to bridge the gap between you sitting around the, the fire with the elders of the community when you first got there. Um, and you know, you were diligent, you were patient, you were waiting, you just wanted to be accepted into the community to now where you have completely created this magical connection with the land and connection to community in ways that I don't think many people would have thought existed currently in the United States. And so can you kind of help me bridge the gap? How did you get to kind of infiltrating their inner circle to learning their wisdom traditions? And then of course your own and your own ancestral traditions that you, you know, to then 
being able to coordinate on a large scale this festival? Well, it helps to be an Aries. <laughs> I, I can relate. Relentless, relentless. If I see genius, I cannot stop. I cannot stop, literally. And I knew that once the elders, talking the elders into telling their personal stories, these humble, earthy, gentle, and dignified people never talked about themselves. They always asked permission to talk about a past event because they weren't sure if they had the exact dates and information right. Very honorable, noble people. Um, and eventually when I did lead Frank Arajam, the grandfather, the Merlin of our community, up to the stage in our funky little theater, and he started to tell his story, holding on to the storytelling staff that he carved out of Aspen's and had to use in order to balance himself because all of these men were bent over with black lung and in the shape of the galleries, the coal mines that they grew up in. The moment he started to tell his story in this tiny little voice, everybody leaned forward and he gained more and more confidence and people began to cry and people began to laugh and people began to clap and people stood up and cheered. And it was the most beautiful homecoming for the new folk as well as the elders and the old timers. We came together that night. And so storytelling was always at the base of this. And I would create uh, a month of storytelling workshops so that people could come to tell their own personal stories of the wild and the wonderful, um, of being ranchers and cowboys, of being wilderness explorers, of coming to this community of the old country, remembering because many of these men had been born and women had been born before the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. So they were tremendous culture bearers and lore and seed carriers. And so we got to have that enrichment before they walked on, which I don't know if that would have happened. I just, I don't know. And so the whole idea of telling your story became a part of the children's lives because the school was always involved, the elders were involved, multi-generations are always part of this. And the narrative, the sacred narrative of the story that we keep telling all week long about these archetypal embodiments and how they are truly embedded in our roots and our European native spirit, even indigenous knowledge. It's in our DNA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that connecting through personal stories is so powerful. And I can relate to um, being a young girl. And my my grandfather was British, and he was fighting um, in the war and stationed in Germany. And he was at Battle of Normandy, D-Day. And I remember doing school reports, you know, when I was a young girl and learning about the war and wanting to interview him. And I can absolutely relate that this generation was so humble. They didn't really want to talk about those stories. I mean, this is a little bit different because it was quite tragic. Um, but, you know, they, 
they didn't really want to open up about these stories, but once they felt comfortable and once people were leaning in and, you know, for my grandfather to, to think his granddaughter that is raised in California so far away from him is interested in his life, mm -hmm. he opened up. And that's where the rich stories lie. And that's where the deeper connection I think is established, which is exactly what it sounds like you've done in your community, which is it, it's so true. You're speaking of the honor of yes. being listened to, which sadly is rare in our Western world. We're a competitive conversation society. Mm -hmm. And so I truly believe that authentic listening is nothing less than an act of love. And that's what happened. We fell in love with each other. This is a love story. It's a love story of courting the earth, making a vow to the earth, preserving our beautiful red lady, who is the sacred goddess of our community. My dear friend, Frank Arajam is the one who saw her coming out of the mind, mine at Alpenglow at the end of the day and saw in the facade, this beautiful avalanche shoot of our mountain, he saw the profile of a goddess and being a very devout Catholic, he dropped to his knees and he said, this is our lady. This is the red lady. So this whole series of ceremonies is the opposite of patriarchal ceremony, ritual and celebration. That was a very concerted decision on my part. It is the opposite of militaristic drumming of uh, regimented marching. It's dancing in the streets. It is absolutely something that flows from the yoni of the sacred feminine. It honors. We have a beautiful celebration that is the ceremony of the Harvest Mother in which belly dancers dance for her. She's extremely pregnant. It's always beautiful to welcome the new Harvest Baby each year. Now, Harvest Babies are having Harvest Babies from the past into the future. And this ritual of tribal dancing, which began in the birthing room, in the red tent, and it was sympathetic support for the labor that she would do. And so we honor these different traditions as we bringing riches because we don't appropriate. But if someone wishes to bring something that is from their tradition and wishes to share it, then we are very happy to embrace it. So powerful. I, I, I love um, one of the quotes. I think it might even be the, the tagline of your festival, um, be more wild than good. Mm -hmm. And I think that that just speaks to this untamed feminine energy that's rising. Um, and I think that that's such a beautiful decision that you made to kind of have that be the, the heart of this festival. You know, I think that a lot of us are, you know, people that are listening to this probably can relate to, to myself and my story, which has always been kind of in the overdrive, in the masculine, always achieving, following what society thinks that we should be doing, you know, climbing the ladders of, of everything. Um, and to kind of realize that we're in, that we're stuck in that and to have that kind of awakening moment of, wait a minute, like 
I'm a little bit too far on this end of the spectrum and I need to really connect back to my sacred feminine and bring those qualities forth. I think that corporations need to bring that forth. I think that our individual, um, just women in general, you know, need to not be, I would say, ashamed of their wild feminine, you know, or feel like that she needs to be changed or altered in any way. I think there's so much incredible healing work that can be done with, with the feminine. Rising. Also these, that tradition, that ancient Greek tradition, we could say, and therefore, you know, European tradition that comes from the origins of all spiritual context, which is animism, the spirit that moves in all things, that this is inclusive. It is based on acceptance it is erotic it's sensual it's filled with the partnership paradigm and omni gender if that's what people choose it is uh, a welcoming of you know ancient peoples indigenous peoples never talked about the wild the wild was home that's mm -hmm. what home was mm -hmm. and so we think of that as homing as knowing what you would die for so that you could be busy living for it, whatever species that is, whatever plant life that is. The rivers are super fund watershed that comes from the continental divide and feeds California and Mexico. You know, this exquisite fecund valley that is very unique in the North American Rockies. We are privileged and we are liberated to be able to express through the sacred feminine that inclusivity, the grassroots, like there is no paid individual who creates this. 250 people volunteer. And that is a tenth of our full-time population. These are the core values. This is what the elders ask me to continue transmitting. And that is what we have chosen to continue to do on into the 21st century. Incredible. In, in your TED Talk, uh, Transforming Community, Celebrating Our Stories and Spirit of Place, you say there is an act and an art of staying put. And I found that so touching in this moment that we find ourselves in where we're being asked to stay at home. So can you elaborate just a little bit more about what you mean that, that there's an art of staying put? And then also, do you believe that human beings are meant to stay put and grow roots? That's a very astute and I think seminal question. The elders noted how we were all busily running around I had come straight out of advertising and journalism and fashion in Chicago. I'd also come straight out of working with inner city gang members and asylum seekers. So community organizing was at the soul of everything that my arts and therapy wanted to support. And I think that when we look back at the history of humanity, we have been the most successful as a species for the longest period of time, learning from a five mile square radius, what nature has to teach us, what first nature has to teach us. 
we still have not adapted even today to nanoseconds, which are the measurement of time with computers. We haven't really adapted to seconds and minutes. What we are adapted to is sunrise, midday, and sunset. So these old, strange magic forms, these perennial wisdoms, the ways that tending our homesteads, which included the environment around that had allowed us to live and thrive, the communal and collective effort, which always included first nature, this sacred art of indwelling, inhabiting, of recognizing that we will not disturb the elk trods or the deer paths, the migratory routes, that we will notice that when, like on my birthday, March 30th, I watch for the skein of snow geese because it tells us something about the weather. Mrs. Brown, the brown trout who comes every year uh, to lay eggs and wait for her, her boyfriend to come upstream in the spawn is back. And I was so pleased to see her. And when you were offering the medicine wheel and the cardinal directions and calling in the health of those, you mentioned hummingbird. And on May 1st, it will probably be snowing or sleeting here. This is when the hummingbirds arrive. So living by the rituals of the first nature, first here, is an important part of what humans deeply, and I think best, learn through. Nature is always speaking to us, always speaking to us. And now we have the time to pause and poise. I mean, just the peace of the world standing still. I am sorry for the loss. I'm deeply sorry because of course we felt it in our community, a very small valley community that is isolated. So if we lose three people, three people walk on, it's like 300,000 people in, oh, say San Francisco. I mean, it's huge for us and people have walked on. At the same time, I know that I've been thinking about, and I think Amber, you probably recognize that at some point in our lives, many of us have felt something's coming, something big, yes. something really big. And we chose to come in to be here for it. And I'd been calling these the plague years for quite a while. And I was not beckoning that, obviously, but here it is. Yeah. What came out of the medieval plague years was a rebirthing, a renaissance, a deepening spiritual context. And so I don't want to be idealistic or over romantic about this, but if we hadn't stopped our tremendous arrogant speed as a species, mm -hmm. if we hadn't had the opportunity for parts of the world to see a blue sky or stars for the first time in generations, or for falcons to return to the high rises in New York, or for the creatures that 
could never move in their natural migratory paths to be able to follow those and show their young, their newly born young, something is happening, something is generating, something wants to bring a brave new earth. And that depends on our species and if we can live in harmony with all of the teachings that are available to us through the sovereignty of the earth. Yeah, and it's so well said, Marcy, and I couldn't agree more. For anybody who's listening to this and who, you know, is at home and, you know, everybody's home is different, right? You could be living in a city, you could be living with a beautiful expansive backyard or forest nearby, but everybody's going to have their own kind of unique living situation. And I'm wondering if there's an invitation that we can share with the listeners about, regardless of what your home environment is, how can you kind of connect to nature? How can you turn to nature? How can you listen to nature if it's always speaking to you? You know, what is the invitation for folks who are, are, who are interested? They're, they're keen, they feel what's coming, you know, but they don't necessarily know which way to go. What can we invite them to do? How can we invite them to connect to, to nature more? I would say, first of all, that it's innate in us to be able to do this. And when we were living in Chicago, we had a tiny little balcony, you know, in the middle of the city where you could get maybe two little teeny chairs. And of course, we put plants around. We wanted to invite pollinators. And sure enough, hummingbirds and other butterflies, monarch butterflies came. Mm -hmm. And then as the fall came, we saw that the pupae were rolled up inside the leaves and we would bring them inside and then wait for them to hatch. So there is always a tree for every human. Every human has a tree and cities and towns have trees. Find your tree, find your tree within walking distance on the, the green belt find that place that you can lie down and make what I used to make in childhood in the countryside outside of Peoria, Illinois, nose holes, where I dig holes and stick my nose in so I could smell the earth. Know that there are incredible um, resins in various trees, especially evergreens, that if we are close to them and we can smell the sap, it reduces inflammation, it reduces adrenaline, it calms the entire central nervous system, it boosts the polyvagal nervous system, which then allows the rest and digest and relax and release response for our organisms. Biophilia is the adaptation for our human species to need interconnection with other species and life forms. Find it. Is there an arboretum in your city? Is there a special natural history museum which can allow you to connect with the ancestral lineages of all of the creatures who came before us? Is there a place that you can find that is maybe special, private to you in your local park? that is safe and that there is a time in which you can go and meditate. Walking meditations are deeply important. 
So if there's a forest preserve somewhere near you and you can take transportation to it, go. Take a picnic. Take your dog. Have a cat if you can have a cat. Have a bird, have a fish, have friends and, and fur and hoof and fin and feather, if that's possible in your home place. These are all ways that we long. It's a long loneliness to be separated from first nature, a very long loneliness. And our need to adapt to be with it is so powerful that just stepping out on your front stoop or on your fire escape and watching the robin as she flies to feed her babies, the squirrels that may run up and down the telephone wires onto your roof. See what nature has to say. This I think is really important also supporting groups um, like the Tree Sisterhood, like uh, the Wildlife Defense Fund, you know, Greenpeace. I mean, all of these amazing programs. And of course, Earth Day, which will be the 50th anniversary tomorrow, April 22nd. And I do remember the first Earth Day. I had the privilege, not of being in New York, but celebrating it in the Midwest. And the awareness that something had been planted and it would never stop growing. Now we have, I believe, that same paradigm that we are feeling in these times. If not now, when? If not us, who? If not here, then where? And these, there is no small ritual. There is, it, nothing is lost. The ritual of waking up and pouring a little bit of the first water that you drink or your tea right out into your flower box, just to make an offering back to put food for squirrels or for birds on your soup, on your back porch. I mean, all of these ways of relating to nature are profoundly important. And that ritual that we offer in the morning, when we look, stepping out and look out our window or out our door to see what nature has to teach us and guide us for the day is an extremely important ritual called frith or free that indigenous European women have practiced since time immemorial. You stand and you do exactly as you led us through today, Amber. You look at all of the points of the medicine wheel and see what nature wants to bring through in received knowledge and intuitive mediumship. I, I want to share a little bit of, about how I'm incorporating that into my my daily existence for some of the listeners. I sit outside in, in my front courtyard every morning with my tea and uh, my book for the day. And I go out there with the intention of reading, you know, and, and waking up with my cup of tea or coffee. But I end up looking around myself and looking at the sky and looking at the birds. And we have ravens that are very present on our land and hummingbirds. And um, and I start to 
to create a relationship with these species and I name them. I ask them what their names are. And, and every day I go out there without fail and they, they make themselves known. And it's funny because I go out there thinking, oh, I'm just going to read and wake up. And, but I'm, I'm actually communing with nature. This morning, actually, before our interview, I, I was woken up by two ravens that hang out in our eucalyptus tree in the back, walking loudly, you know, like, <laughs> wake up, Amber, time to go. You know, you're going to have a great conversation today. And, and I think there's just so much beauty and levity and joy in communing with nature. And getting us out of that, what you said earlier, the arrogant speed that we've been existing in. Mm-hmm. And so I think, thank you for that invitation for folks to, to connect. It's innate, it's within us, it's accessible. I love the ideas of providing offerings for the land or for the animals. Uh, these are all things that, that we, can, we can do to live more in harmony with, with nature. Um, the book that I was referencing, that I'm reading, Uh, is actually Daniel Quinn's book, Ishmael. And in that book, he says, human beings don't know how to live. And so if we figured it out, you know, we'd have a chance of surviving and living in accordance with the laws of nature. So I'm really curious, Marcy, from your perspective, what do you think would be the best way for us to organize our communities, given we're at this crossroads? Um, What would that look like? Well, I can say first what it wouldn't look like. Would it, be wouldn't be, it wouldn't be filled with patriarchal domination, top down, marginalizing of those who are elders or women, people of color, omnigendered or transitional individuals. It would be a circle or a collective that was inclusive to the point that any tribe, any ancient tribe understood. I use the concept of tribe the way that anthropologist Franz Boas described it, which is a a community of shared mission and agreement, which supports and assists and even resists the larger consumerist and commercialized society. There's a lot of negative projection onto the concept of tribe, but I am very, very involved in reclaiming the ancient sacred language that has been co-opted, that has been appropriated, has even been demonized by patriarchal cultures. I'm not talking about men. I believe in the deepest of of partnership paradigms. Everything that I do, I do with a male partner or my male partner. And so the way that we can live that is God speed or goddess speed, the speed of nature's seasonal changes of mating and conceiving, birthing, feeding, the waters melting, the springs being freed to become wild, the migratory paths of creatures being honored first and foremost. The concept of sustainability has become so overused. This is more of a sense of of reclaiming 
our ancient wisdom. We know how to do this. And in the last six weeks that we have been, I don't like the phrase uh, self-isolating. <laughs> I use selective retreating or self-sequestering. I like I that. Like that. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> or we call it sheltering in paradise because oh, yeah. that's what we believe we are living in and we're very fortunate to. But knowing how we go through the day, recognizing what really draws us, how much baking and cooking and canning people have been doing together, storytelling, sharing their stories, lore from the past that grandparents just have never been heard and haven't shared. I mean, the beauty of you hearing about the Second World War from someone who went through more changes probably in the history of humanity than almost any other generation, the greatest generation and so on. So many things are happening. People are returning to having a table that's dedicated to making a puzzle together. Yeah. You know, um, intentional sewing and what are called hearth magic. You know, the kinds of creations around the hearth that women and men shared since the beginning of time. The tending to the fire, every morning when we get up, Mark sets the fire. He, I hear him getting the wood, chopping kindling, he comes in, he feeds it to the fire, and then he asks her her name. And this morning her name was Cassandra. Ooh. So, yes, I know. So, <laughs> And occasionally she's been Betty or, you know, something like that. But this morning it was Cassandra, the seer. So I thought, ah, I should share that with Amber. That's a very fine fire to have burning with us. So the paradigm that feels to me and has been with us since the 60s, you know, the age of Aquarius and all of the astrological and various lunar and solar migrations that have happened over the past hundreds of years have looked at a time like this, a time in which we had to stop. We simply had to breathe. We had to understand how to hear ourselves, our internal counsel. We had to recognize that there is an art of listening, and that is to listen, to understand, not solely to be understood, to develop civil discourse, which includes civil discourse with all of creation outside our door, in our attics, the spiders swinging from the thread right now, the critters that live in my cabin attic, you know, <laughs> we're all here. This is that great pile of creatures with our fluffy tails curled around us who have just come out of hibernation from our deep winter into, I would say, not a winter of our discontent, but a spring of our contentment, content of being full and recognizing that it's not what we have, it's how we enjoy that shows us what our wealth and our riches are. And the deep appreciation for our frailty, our vulnerability as creatures. This has reminded us 
we have infected other creatures. We have forced them into concentrated areas that are not their natural habitat or feeding areas. We've made them live with us. We have infected them. And I believe that Mother Earth said, now pay attention to leggeds. She could have done something so much more intense. Let us get it. So nothing that we offer up, no ritual that we do during any part of our day that has intention and attention, that has an offering, that has a place in which we open up to receive the presence. Nothing is too small. All of it is dedicated to the sacred, to creating sacred space, to ensuring sacred space. And that's within our homes, our dwellings. Whatever we're doing as we go about our day, just a minute to pause and listen in and look up and look out. Soak in and savor and steep ourselves in the world that has been waiting a thousand times a thousand years for us to suffer enough in order to invite the guides through. So eloquently said, I couldn't agree more. And Marcy has been so generous with her time today. And she's also um, being even more generous and offering anybody that feels compelled to maybe connect with her on a more deeper level. Uh, I certainly am very interested in doing that just from our conversation, but she's offering a 20 minute goddess gift. Um, this is something that's free and it's an intuitive transformational mentorship phone sharing opportunity. So if anybody is interested in, in connecting with Marcy further, I will put in the show notes uh, the email that you can just shoot a quick email to and get scheduled to connect with her on a more deeper level. Um, I certainly think that that is so kind. And so thank you for, for offering that to the listeners. That's why I'm here, Amber. I, I love it. I feel, um, you know, I've, I've shared in other episodes, the desire to have uh, strong elders in our community, you know, continuing to share the stories and pass on the wisdom and, and I certainly feel like I want, I'm, I'm seeking that. And so just to even be able to connect with you has been personally for me, a, a, a great experience. And I think anybody who's listening to this, who has elders in their community, whether that be their grandparents or, you know, people at the library that they run into, ask them their story, you know, let's honor and, and keep this wisdom alive uh, in our community. They think that it's, it's so important that we, we keep this going um, and we don't lose, you know, these sacred stories and these ancient traditions. I also think, Amber, it's so important for those of us who have, hold our wise blood, you know, moon paws. And now we have that wise blood to really allow us to claim all of the ages of our lives. I'm just as much of a brat as a maiden, as a warrior, as a mother, as a grandmother. I'm, I'm as young as I want to be and as old as I need to be. And so I invite all people who are moving into male paws or moon paws, recognize 
let people know who you are. Do not tolerate becoming invisible. Practice the get to know me. Get to know me. Stand for your medicine. Count on your wisdom. Believe in your genius. Experience, experience, experience. And because of people like you, Amber, and so many of the young people in my circle in the Earth Wisdom Mystery School, in the Earth Wisdom Secular Ministry, all of these programs that are really for multi-generations and that the wise younger ones are the ones who recognize, yes, let me sit with, let me story with, let me listen to elders. When I was in my late 40s, I started to audition what I hoped would be an elder mentor, women in their late 60s and 70s. And every single one of them said, I don't know anything. I, I, I can't do this. I, oh, no, 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 no. Find somebody else. I, it was heartbreaking yeah. to hear that. And I, and I was very sad because I haven't had that except for these beautiful elders in our community who allowed me to come in and, and to be sheltered with them and to learn with them. And so we are deprived if we don't have multi-generational communication and communion. Yeah, thank you for that reminder. Oh, wow. Um, you know, your experience has, has been over 50 years. Um, you know, you have been a goddess mother of experiencing, reclaiming, and bringing ancient and perennial wisdom forward into the present. Um, you know, I think that you've, you've really shared with us today how, you know, you make your co-creation of individual and collective ritual unique in the 21st century, um, particularly when we're entering maybe a little bit more of a challenging phase and there's deeper healing required. Is there anything else that you wanted to add on to, to that, where you see us going? Anything else on your heart that we haven't quite covered today? I think that it is a, a deprivation if we don't utilize all of the sacred technologies, sacred arts and sciences that have been available to us. And the ancient and perennial wisdoms have been proven time and time and time again. They are at the ground of being of our species and of all species. And I believe that honoring the ancient wisdom and creating healing with cutting edge contemporary knowledge to create hope for the future is what ritual is about in our own individual practices, in our collective practices, in our larger selected online communities. I mean, there has been so much beautiful ritual through Skype and Zoom. Uh, a virtual retreat that I was leading uh, with my co-partner, nobody would close the Skype at the end of the session. We just stared into each other's eyes and you know, put a hand up to touch. And that went on for 10 or 15 minutes because the intimacy and the bond and the fondness 
was so profoundly there. And this is a group of people who had never met before. And so you know that from your own online community, as well as the people that you work with in person. This works. This, it's a miracle. It is truly the web, spider woman's web, weaving the past into the present and on into the future. There's hope. Thank you. And Marcy. faith. Faith. And faith. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Marcy, this has been so incredible to hear you speak. It's, it's a true honor. And I really hope that the listeners found this as inspirational and as inspiring as I have. It's been incredible to share this sacred time with you. Um, I think that we'll close off by, if I, if I may, kind of taking your little slogan. Um, to everybody that's listening today, be well, be wise, and be more wild than good. Thank you, Marcy. It is so. Thank you.